I should just mention to you that John has a cold today, um, so his nose is running a little bit. It's, it's actually uh, significant because the last time we were on a stage together, John had a bit of a runny nose and just thought it might have been a cold, and it turned out that his brain fluid was leaking through his nose, which is a rather disgusting thought, I know, to open up the conversation. But I, I can assure you he's, he's actually very minor this time. Please welcome John Hewson. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Simon. Um, it's, I was very hesitant to accept this invitation, knowing that you were going to chair the session. <laughs> the saving grace of that particular experience that you mentioned was they at least found a brain when they opened my head, which had put a lot of speculation to rest over. Speculation that existed for quite some time. I have the flu, obviously, today, so I apologise for that, but I have a very socially inclusive three-and-a-half-year-old who insists on bringing these diseases home from preschool and sharing them around the family. So we've all been suffering for the last couple of weeks. So I hope you can bear with me and uh, the fact that my voice might fade. Uh, I think this is a particularly important topic that I want to address today. And I'd have to say at the start that Kevin Rudd was right, at least about this particular, on this particular occasion, when he said that climate change is the moral challenge of this century. I would go further and say it is one of the greatest economic, social and political challenges as well. It's not just a challenge to government, it's a challenge to all of us as businesses, consumers, families, individuals, communities and so on. I guess uh, the first question to ask is how do we know that climate change is a challenge? I mean, most of us are not climate scientists. You can't look out the window and see global warming, you can't feel it. The only reason we know that it's a challenge is that something quite unusual has happened. And that is that 97% of peer-assessed, peer-reviewed climate scientists actually do what they don't normally do, and that is that they agreed. It's the nature of science and scientific method that you don't agree, that you contest each other's hypotheses, you contest each other's empirical conclusions, research conclusions. But in this particular case, there's enormous agreement. As I say, some 97% of peer-reviewed climate scientists who agree that there is a problem as to the magnitude of the problem and as to the urgency of the problem. Against that background, I was pretty dismayed towards the end of last year when I saw reference to a speech made by our previous Prime Minister, John Howard. Uh, he made the speech in London to Nigel Lawson's um, climate deniers group um, uh, and he argued uh, that to him... He was an agnostic, he said, when it came to climate change, and he preferred to rely on his instincts. <laughs> and I'd say to you that it's not a question of religion, it's a question of science. It's not a question of instincts, it's a question of scientific fact. Uh, I was also disturbed to see Howard in that speech admit that he'd openly played politics with the issue. And elements of the issue, policy responses like an emissions trading scheme, depending on the short-term political circumstances in which he found himself. Because climate change to me is a long-term structural challenge. Uh, it uh, certainly should be well beyond short-term politics and it should be an area, one of the few areas in this country and internationally where we can hope for some level of bipartisan cooperation. An adequate response to climate change is a long-term response. You're changing behaviour, you're changing institutions, you're changing practices with new and developing technologies. 
Something, I guess, in a in sense of a technological revolution should be fundamental to an adequate response to the area of climate change, bringing with it new businesses, new industries, new job opportunities and so on. In those terms, the response to climate change has to be front-end loaded. Uh, you can't uh, be concerned about an increase in, in uh, global warming uh, by, say, two degrees by the middle of this century and hope to wait to 2049 to respond. You've got to respond now because it takes time to implement change and it takes time to change behaviour and for those changes in behaviour to take effect. As I sit here today in 2014, I'm particularly concerned that uh, people here and globally don't see the significance and the urgency of the challenge of climate change. Despite the fact that uh, there's been considerable debate and many, many steps forward, some backwards, over the last 20 odd years. I'm very concerned that <coughs> it's not widely accepted and understood, particularly in our domestic political debate. And the purpose of today's discussion is to focus on the fact that those who you'd expect to understand risks, like climate change risks, the financial community, are underpricing risks, while governments in many respects are still subsidising um, fossil fuel-based uh, power generation, for example. They're all failing to recognise the significance of the risks that are being run in the context of the climate challenge that I think is there. By way of background, I wanted to just say that back in 1993, I took an environment policy to the election. It didn't get a lot of attention at the time. Apparently, people were distracted by something called the GST. <laughs> but in that uh, election uh, campaign, I advocated a cut in greenhouse gas emissions by 20% by the year 2000, working off a 1990 base. And that was at a time where the climate threat was generally perceived to be something like two degree warming by the mid middle of this century. Today, the latest evidence is suggesting more, the risk is more like a four to six degrees warming by the middle of the century. Yet today in Australia, both sides of politics are still trying to bring about a mere 5% reduction by 2020 off a 2000 base as their base case. And uh, in our particular context with the Abbott government, there's real questioning as to whether the so-called direct action plan can realistically be responded on to deliver even that modest 5%, particularly in view of the cap that's been placed in a budgetary context on the money that's going to be available to buy those emission reductions over the course of the rest of this decade. Uh, <coughs> I guess so you can say that they might achieve that objective by purchasing international credits, but that is ducking the real issue, which is to bring about a reduction in our emissions per se, rather than dress it up in some other way. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, in the same context, uh, we've seen the Abbott government abolish the carbon price and the architecture, the emissions trading scheme architecture behind that carbon price. And uh, we now see, in the course of the last week, a fairly clear attempt to abolish the renewable energy target, which will effectively spell the end to a viable renewables energy industry in this country for quite some time to come. I think this will be a tragedy for the future of our economy, where we enjoy an abundance of natural assets like solar and wind, 
and where we're struggling to rejuvenate that economy in the aftermath of the resources boom. We're making a transition in economic growth terms, but the question remains transition to what? In those circumstances, a new industry with new jobs and uh, new opportunities is hard, to, is hard to forego. Yet, a noted climate denier was put in charge of a review of the renewable energy uh, system. And if you, don't, if you start with the assumption that uh, climate change doesn't matter, you're probably going to draw a conclusion that you don't need a renewable energy target. I guess, in summary, one of, my most, one of the most disturbing disconnects in the Abbott government's policy strategy is that while we shouldn't leave our children and grandchildren with mountains of national debt, and while we shouldn't leave them with an unsustainable entitlements program, it's absolutely okay to leave them with the economic, environmental and social consequences of climate change. Climate change uh, poses a lot of risks, both short-term and long-term, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of property values, share prices, fossil fuel reserves and so on. These risks are exposures to climate policies, oh, sorry, to weather events themselves, I guess, to climate policies that are initiated in response to technological advancements that punish uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And these risks can be anticipated and they can be unanticipated. For example, in the short term, there's a direct physical impact of extreme weather on exposed infrastructure and a decline in the demand for assets that create emissions um, incentives to reduce emissions, for example. In the longer term, there are those direct impacts working through the system, as well as indirect effects on species, extinction, disease, human conflicts, food security, and so on. There are also uh, unanticipated dimensions to this risk. Um, the way financial markets work, of course, it's easy to get a succession of events, a coincidence of events that come together that give you compression in financial markets. Suddenly people want to get out of a particular share, for example, and others flood in to get out as well. They drive the market down overshooting. They're unanticipated events, but we've seen how these events can work just as most recently in the response to the global financial crisis. And there are also a host of legal responsibilities, as we saw with tobacco. The corporations that create or significant emissions or fail to take appropriate action can be liable to, to, to legal um, action down the track. So, the risk nature is very complex. There are a lot of uh, dimensions to this. And this is where I come now to the response of the superannuation industry to those risks. I'm uh, chairman of, as, uh, as uh, Simon said, of the Asset Owners Disclosure Project. Here we have attempted to focus in on one of the principal drivers of the global economy, uh, investment. And we focus on the top 1,000 global funds, the big asset owners of the world. These 1,000 account for some 70 to 75 trillion US dollars worth of assets. As such, they own and control more than 50% of all the listed companies and all the stock exchanges of the world. But what's disturbing about their investment behaviour is that on average, they invest about 55% of that 70 to 75 trillion in climate-exposed industries, carbon-intensive industries, and only 2%, only 2% in low-carbon-intensive industries. That is a 55 to 2 punt against significant climate change impacting on infrastructure, share prices, property values, and so on. 
That is a phenomenal punt. It's a phenomenal risk. It's, uh, it dwarfs, for example, the risk of the subprime market. Now, as I said before, financial markets are not very good at pricing risk. I know it's their business and I know we laud financial engineers from time to time, investment bankers, all sorts of awards around the world for how clever they are. Just think back to the global financial crisis, how clever they were in that context. The whole system of debt, the excessive debt that was built up at that time, was built on the basis of the subprime housing loan in the United States. To get a subprime loan in the United States, you basically needed to be something of a financial delinquent. You needed a track record of having failed to meet payments. In some cases, you could have been a bankrupt. And then the financial institution, with the encouragement of the government and being exploited by investment bankers and others, that financial institution would lend you maybe as much as 125% of the value of a house at an artificially low initial interest rate, which you hope to reset as the equity in the house increased, as the prices of the property improved, but on a no-recourse basis. That is, if you couldn't make your payments in the end, you could hand the keys back. Now, stepping back today and looking at that, you'd say that's a fairly high-risk, insane investment. It was a punt on US house prices continuing to go up. A reasonable punt in, many, in the eyes of many because for every year, I think, bar one since the Great Depression, US house prices had actually gone up and so they were just punting that that process would continue. On the back of that, then, they securitised a lot of those subprime loans with other mortgages and other debt instruments to give you collateralised debt obligations and CLOs and credit default swaps and a whole structure of debt built on the basis of a very shonky set of base loans, subprime lending loans in the United States. So when house prices didn't go up, the whole structure came down. That was a significant risk. It was a risk that was clearly underpriced and under-recognised by, by the financial community at the time. And um, I'm putting it to you that the risk that we're running on climate change dwarfs that sort of risk. Just as we failed to rein in the excesses of debt with the disastrous consequences that we've seen since the global financial crisis, we are now operating on a much larger scale, failing to rein in the excesses of greenhouse gas emissions. We have built a climate bubble and we're building a bigger one day in, day out as these circumstances unfold. A, a climate crisis of enormous proportions compared to anything we've experienced and particularly most recently in relation to the GFC. So I'm particularly concerned that in the context of that sort of risk, our superannuation funds in general are still taking the big punt, 55 to 2 against climate, catastrophic climate change or policy responses to catastrophic climate change or technological developments that may come that could dramatically change the nature of uh, their, their, their exposures to carbon-intensive industries across the board. The Asset Owners Disclosure Project seeks to survey and rate and, in effect, name and shame those top 1,000 pension superannuation funds, the global funds, their pension and superannuation funds, some insurance companies, some sovereign wealth funds, some university endowment funds. They are the big financial movers, as I said, in the world. They are the ones that are taking the big risk. And the problem with managing a climate bubble 
is it's a lot harder to manage than it is to manage a financial bubble. We've seen how you can solve the financial crisis. A collapsing financial system can be res rescued fairly expeditiously through government action. You can bail out institutions, you can stand behind particular transactions. It's a relatively short-term impact that can be managed. However, carbon dioxide remains in the atmosphere for centuries. There are no short-term fixes. There's no quick you know, bailout. There's no easy way out. And as I say, the response in political and government terms has got to be, and in individual responses, has got to be front-end loaded. So our survey is aimed at surveying, rating, naming and shaming these institutions into changing their behaviour. And I'm pleased to report that, of course, it is having some effect. Uh, we've seen some major pension funds, for example, CalPERS in the United States, the largest public pension fund, has responded, now gets a AAA rating. It has... All we're asking these to do, we're not forcing these institutions to suddenly get out of coal or suddenly get out of fossil fuels or suddenly get out of those carbon-exposed investments. What we want them to do is recognise the risks as I described it, analyse their portfolio against that risk, and it's fairly difficult and it's fairly complex, but it can be addressed, and then decide how to respond. In some cases, they may divest or divest at the margin. In other cases, they may seek to hedge the risk. In other cases, they may seek to increase their investment in renewables and low-carbon intensive industries and, 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 and efficiency-type uh, business opportunities and so on. There are a multiplicity of ways to respond, but we've got to get them to first recognise the magnitude of the risk they're running in terms of their own portfolio and then manage that risk. So we survey them on their management of climate risk and we ask them specific questions as to why they are taking such a large exposure to carbon-exposed industries against the reality of climate change, the accelerating reality of, of, of climate change. Of course, some of these institutions are quite hypocritical. I mean, when it comes to investing in companies, and as I said, they're large owners of the stock exchanges of the world, they demand transparency from some of these companies. They want to know what climate risks they're running and how they're quantifying it and how they're dealing with it and so on. Yet they're not prepared to apply the same standards of transparency to themselves, to be the same level of accountability to themselves and their own activity. We've got a fair bit of pushback from some of the industry bodies in response to an independent group like us coming along and daring to survey and rate and then name and shame. It's given me the, the, the uh, inclination actually to, additional, to, to, to move to an additional index, an hypocrisy index, where we rank them not only on their management of climate risk, but also on their hypocrisy in terms of the way they go about that. Uh, we work from the top down with that survey. The bottom up, uh, is uh, uh, based on a social media platform we developed called The Vital Few, which empowers individual superannuation fund members to ask their trustee of their superannuation fund or the director of their fund, whatever the corporate structure is, the, the institutional structure is, ask them how they're managing climate risk and why they're taking such exposures with their superannuation money. Now, this is a very significant question. These asset owners have to have a long-term perspective. They have to think in terms of maximising the return to those individual fund members over the working life of those members. Yet they give the management, predominantly give the management of those assets out to short-term asset managers, short-term focused asset managers. Asset managers that are remunerated more on the basis of short-term performance. 
So there's a very significant difference in perspective which we're trying to get these asset owners to focus on and which the vital few, the, super, the superannuation fund members, are asking them to be accountable for. It's a significant fiduciary responsibility and they, they should in some sense be held publicly and privately accountable for the way they manage and exercise that fiduciary responsibility. I ask you to think about a circumstance, as was the case in 2007, with a fund that I advised, where I took the view because of my local council investing in CDOs, which I thought was an insane way to invest trust money on behalf of local council. I got very worried about this structure of debt, and the more I looked at it, the more concerned I became that there would be a global financial crisis, that stock markets around the world would go down about 50%. So we called in the asset managers that advise us, whether they were equity managers, value managers, growth managers, domestic managers, foreign managers, property managers, and some other sort of <coughs> investment instruments, and asked them, what should we do? If I'm right and the market's going to go down 50%, uh, what should I do? Every single one of them said, first, don't get out of the market. Whatever you do, just underweight this, overweight that, manage your risk around it. They're all a herd, they all think the same way, they all hug the index, they all give you the same sort of returns, a little up, a little down. I said, okay, so let's say I'm right, the market goes down by 50%. You'll come back in here next year and tell me that the bit you managed for us only went down 49.2. And I'm supposed to believe that you've added 0.8 in value when you've lost half my money. That's the sort of question that has to be asked at the asset manager level. If we see the risk, we understand the risk, you've got to drive those asset managers to change their view of the way these funds should be managed. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a very significant um, set of circumstances, as I say, the compression in financial markets, it can run away from you. If you're late into the game, you will be, you'll suffer more than anybody else. Yet it takes quite a big call on the part of an asset manager to say, hang on, we think that climate risk is going to drive this market down at some point. There's going to be a massive divestment from coal assets, for example. Our exposure to coal shares or to infrastructure related to the coal industry or whatever are all going to go down in value. They've got to make those assessments and they've got to make those decisions because it's your money. They're supposed to be managing it in a fiduciary sense over the long term. In relation to that, we're thinking of launching a global challenge, um, a fiduciary case against a major fund. Needless to say, we're spending a fair bit of time with lawyers because it's a fairly high-risk strategy. But it is worth doing to make the point, in my view. Another related aspect to what we do at the Asset Owners Disclosure Project is we've now started to rank university endowment funds. Now, you'd figure that universities, which are basically the home of most of the climate scientists of the world and pretty active, uh, um, particularly the bigger ones, pretty active alumni and so on, would be fundamentally interested in climate change. So we ran some pretty cheeky online ads uh, about uh, Harvard University, for example, a nice photograph asking, saying, pointing out that, you know, whatever the number is, six presidents of the United States have come from Harvard. How do you think they'd feel about your management of climate risk? Or go to Cambridge, where Isaac Newton was quite famous, saying, how do you reckon Isaac would be these days in terms of your attitude to climate change? The interesting thing with that university index is that when it was sent to Australian universities, one of the universities, Monash as it turned out, I think the chief financial officer or somebody of that ilk, sent out an email to all the other members of the Big Eight saying, why don't we collude on this? Why don't we get together? Why don't we try and knock these guys off now before they get started? Rather than respond to the challenge, let's try and, you know, duck it. 
The unfortunate feature of that experience was he sent us the email as well. <laughs> and we were able to organise a late-line program on the basis of that email. And I don't know whether he's still got a job, but he shouldn't have. Because wouldn't you, in your responsibility to that sort of organisation, want to address this issue? Because if you don't address it, you're taking the most incredible risk. More recently, I guess about a week ago, we were asked whether we'd survey the banking, global banks as well. They are at least as exposed, maybe even more exposed, we don't know the numbers yet, to the high carbon intensive industries of the world. These are significant challenges. They've got challenges that have got to be made. Because if they keep ploughing money into high carbon exposed industries and those industries uh, in time collapse, phase down, are reduced in their significance, whatever. Not only are the superannuation benefits of individuals whose interests they're supposed to be protecting be lost, but of course a very, they compound the risk of a, uh, of a global climate catastrophe. They put, in fact, in simple terms, in terms of the words used to describe this session, they put our planet at risk. We're very appreciative of the Asset Owners Disclosure Project that, you know, as you can imagine, these things are hard to fund. The uh, Climate Institute founded us and funded us initially. We now moved our head headquarters to London uh, to be closer to potential funders. It's a st financial struggle to fund this sort of activity. We've had an enormous support on a fr you know, free basis, from uh, pro bono basis, from university students and others that have helped us do the surveying and rating. But uh, it is an exercise where we're establishing a presence which we think is fundamentally important to making things, uh, to changing the way, in fact, people think. And while governments dick around with renewable energy targets or whether they will or won't price carbon, I think the world is going to run away from governments. We hope we can drive the financial sector to lead, in some sense, a response. But I think while the Abbott government is in reverse, while it's uh, going flat out to get out of these issues, advised by a range of climate deniers, whether the head of the business advisory group or the financial system review or the audit commission or, as we've seen with the, renewal, the review of the renewable energy target, I mean, they're going to be left behind. They in self, themselves will probably be stranded. I think in terms of the next 12 months leading to the Paris meeting at the end of next year, you will see a global shift in favour of... Um, some sort of global agreement on emissions reduction, perhaps even a move towards a more significant response in terms of the pricing of carbon globally. I think there's a very high probability that will be led by groups, uh, uh, you know, unnatural suspects like the United States and China working together to argue that case. And the sort of debate we hear in this country understates the significance of those global trends. I also miss the point that we are on the verge of a revolution, as UBS Bank recently described it, in renewables. In the course of the next 10, 15 years, you will see large-scale power plants becoming extinct as we move directly to more generation of our own power, either commercially or, or uh, residentially. We can move to electric cars. The potential is enormous in that industry, renewables industry. And I don't see why in a country like Australia where we desperately need growth that we can afford to miss that opportunity. Final comment over my time with this issue, which is now 20-odd years, 
we were part of a group, and Simon's on the board as well of the National Business Leaders Forum on Sustainable Development, something we started in the late 90s. Part of its role was to educate the business community about the phenomenal opportunities that exist in a sensible response to climate change, in the renewables industry, energy efficiency, a range of alternative technologies. We met among ourselves for a few years because nobody was particularly interested. We brought our Gore to Australia in 2003. He was dispensed with as a failed politician and a mere entertainer, but he did uh, crystallise a, a position which uh, I ultimately appeared to the world as an inconvenient truth. But in that process, I personally decided that you can demonstrate how you can make money out of a sensible response to climate change. I started a business back on the first day of the Olympics in 2000 to recycle household garbage in Sydney, built a plant at Eastern Creek. Because landfilling of garbage is the most barbaric environmental practice that I know. It breaks the carbon cycle, leaches into the water table, emits methane gas somewhere between 30 and 150 years. But if you separate garbage, you've got a whole lot of income streams, paper, glass, plastic and so on. But from the environment point of view, you can extract the methane gas in 24 hours by a combination, as we did in that stage, aerobic and anaerobic digestion systems, to pull the methane gas out, use it to create electricity, to run the plant, sell the rest into the grid. A viable business, which is still operating, even though its ownership has changed. Second one was energy-efficient light bulbs, which we started a, quite a few years ago. It's helped enormously by the decision, I think, led by, by um, the member for Wentworth uh, that uh, banned incandescent light bulbs at the time. Another one was we built the largest biodiesel plant in the world in Singapore. Another one was to work on green data centres. Endless business opportunities from my own direct personal experience. And I don't know how a government could stand out against that sort of innovation. And while we use rudimentary technology to start our each of those businesses, it's the second, third, fourth, fifth generation technology, that technological revolution I mentioned that's going to have a very real impact on global growth as well as, of course, the response to climate change. So I stand here today uh, quite frustrated that in this country we've come and gone so much on this issue. We've had big political constituencies back in 2007 that were squandered and are now rebuilding. But there is an urgency to this issue that requires a substantive response. And one of the principal groups that can respond to that is our financial community, particularly our pension and superannuation funds. And in this country where we've got compulsory super, an industry that's whatever it is today, 1.8 billion, sorry, trillion dollars under management, and probably going to five or six trillion when we finally get to the 15% base number that, of compulsory super that people think is required. This is a very big industry. It is running a very big risk and it needs to face that risk. I quote Voltaire, the French philosopher and writer, to finish, men argue, nature acts. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, in a moment we're going to go to questions and comments from the floor and there are microphones, two of them on either side just near the entrance. You can see they're being illuminated now. If you'd like to join the conversation, ask a question, make a comment, would you please make your way to the microphone now and you can join in this conversation. Uh, before we get underway with it though, John, um, I mentioned in introducing this session that 
really all of us being uh, contributors to superannuation funds in a sense are complicit uh, to some extent, albeit unwittingly complicit in the destruction of the planet that you predict. What can we do just as ordinary contributors in this space? I mean, you've got disclosure, but what would anybody here be able to do? Well, I think you can go online to the Vital Few, our social media platform, which helps you write that letter or that email to your fund manager or uh, to your, sorry, your fund director or trustee in our case, mostly in Australia, drawing attention to their fiduciary responsibilities and arguing, asking them how they're managing climate risk, why they are so exposed or what is their exposure, how do they defend that exposure. And that sort of grassroots campaign in the social media sense can make a phenomenal difference. Uh, as has happened, as you might expect, uh, we've tried to link that exercise with a number of NGOs in this area who you would think on face value might have a significant interest in the same sort of outcome. There's unfortunately a fair bit of politics at that level as well. Mm. We're getting there. Uh, we can see many ways in which we can link with groups like World Life, Life Fund and 350.org and others that we can, we can mount that sort of social media campaign. The, <coughs> the top-down survey stuff, the bottom-up media response, uh, sorry, uh, uh, member response is fundamental to, to getting them to face those responsibilities. And, you know, directors in many cases may be quite slow to respond. They might just push that off. But realistically, if you understand fiduciary responsibility, they can't be told too many times by members that they've got an issue without actually taking it to board and addressing it properly. And, and if they all um, acted as you would like and began to pile out of these highly exposed carbon-intensive industries, I imagine they're going to say this is the effective uh, fire sale and that there'll be a precipitous decline in value. Would they, are they arguing then that, they, that even if they agree with you, there has to be a staged withdrawal to preserve value? Yeah, look, I, one of the reasons I... or two reasons why I oppose just an outright divestment campaign uh, is, is uh, firstly that um, there's sort of an implicit assumption in those campaigns that somehow the managers of these super funds are immoral or you know, unethical or whatever uh, in, in making these investments. Whereas, in fact, they're mostly profit maximisers who are responding to existing market circumstances to make those decisions. Right? And governments are still widely subsidising fossil fuels, for example, and, and other carbon-intensive activities. It's a natural business response, but you need them to think about that response. And secondly, of course, it's not a simple issue about, oh, well, we'll get out of coal. Because the way it will work, I think, in practice is that while coal values will go down, I have think no doubt over time, we've seen the coal price go down to a six-year low in the last few days, but, and there are share price responses to that, and some companies have suffered more than others already in that sense. I mean, there will be transitional stages in the adjustment from a coal-fired power plant to something else. And most likely, for example, gas will be the transitional um, resource. Uh, it's quite possible that the value of gas assets goes up, gas prices go up at the same time as coal prices going down. So it's not a question of just panic and run out and, and shed. It's to think about the risks you're running and the risks you're taking and over what time horizon you're prepared to take them and rethink your portfolio and manage it. And once you've done that and worked out what the risk is, then you can decide, well, there are hedging strategies uh, that, uh, that can be used uh, or there are, you know, obvious, you know, other strategies, I said, if you mix the risk within your portfolio, 
leave your portfolio exposure at the top end uh, to carbon intensive industries pretty much as it is, but invest a lot more at the bottom. You know, I talked about a technological revolution. If you could have that revolution, if you could get the 2% that I said is invested in, in renewables and energy efficiency and so on, up to 5 or 6% globally, that's about enough. And the, I think uh, some of the UBS numbers and so on that have come out in recent days suggest that's enough basically to fund the sort of technological revolution in renewables that we're going to see anyway. It will accelerate it. And, uh, you know, I gave uh, some remarks uh, to... Uh, uh, I launched a, a study for the Victorian government recently on, on their natural assets and I made the, a similar set of comments. And um, I think it was the head of Vic Super came to me. He said, well, you're right. He said, you know, everyone tells us that there's no return in renewables. We invested in LED technology and we made 125% last year. Those opportunities exist. You will, some of them will fail. I mean, some of those renewable technologies are going to struggle for quite some time to get scale, prove themselves at scale and so on. And I've been associated with some of those and you still lick your wounds that mm. you went in early and you went in hard and... Uh, you pay the price. But over time, that builds a momentum. And the sort technologies get sorted out reasonably quickly. So, okay. you know, it's a complicated decision-making process, but... But you have to make the decision. Not panicking, yeah. yeah. Let's start off with here, and then we'll go backwards and forth. And so, yes, you know, that, just say your name very, and away oh, you Sorry, go. my name's Mark. Yeah, um, thanks very much for the presentation, Dr Houston. Uh, first of all, I think maybe you should change the name to The Planet Is Going To Destroy Your Superannuation. It <laughs> uh, seems <laughs> the, the core of the message. Uh, I guess it's a, a two-part sort of question. First, the observation that it's really more my superannuation than yours that's going going to be affected, because this is a 30-year uh, threat, really. Um, and uh, and it's, um, it's a fundamental problem. I, I work in finance. The, uh, the funds that invest ethically tend to make that 0.8 of a percent less that you were referring to in the beginning. And because the majority of investment funds sit with those who are older, have shorter investment time frames, but the bulk of the wealth, mm. that they make decisions based on the weight of those decisions. Uh, it's very similar, really, to the political problem we have, where uh, politicians work in three or four-year cycles, and they aren't motivated to do the right thing. You've made the observation that it's economic uh, issues that, that drive it, that the oil and gas industry is largely still government-subsidised. How do we encourage subsidies to go to the right places to then drive the behaviour, because economics is ultimately following the best and most efficient path. Thanks for that question and comment. And as you answer, John, I mean, I think he makes an incredibly important point. I mean, I look at younger people now, and they are just being left such a terrible legacy. And I'm wondering how the system can respond to that, given the fiduciary duties. But you could... Well, that was a side remark I made about the position of the Abbott government, that, you know, we can't have debt and deficits can't leave that legacy to our children and our grandchildren. We can't leave the unsustainability of the age of entitlements to our children and grandchildren. But we can quite happily leave them all the consequences of climate change and, and so on. Uh, that is a disconnect which is very worrying to me and at some point uh, reality will bite that pretty hard, I think. Um, it is true that, uh, you know, um, your superannuation is more at risk than mine and my three-and-a-half-year-old superannuation is even more at risk. And that's what it's about. As I said, it's a medium-term structural, medium-to-long-term structural problem of this century. I mean, there's a lot of focus on the first half of the century. The response has to be front-end loaded. And, um, you know, uh, to get governments to realise that they shouldn't continue to subsidise fossil fuels. I mean, just pick a specific policy in Australia, the diesel fuel rebate. 
uh, you know, we'd have a bit of trouble, I think, convincing the Abbott government that that ought to go right now, particularly when they're having a lot of trouble with the indexation of fuel generally. But, you know, they're the sort of subsidies that are very big and very real, and there are a lot of other elements. The same as, you know, the, the, uh, I see that uh, the Warburton review of the RET, the Renewable Energy Target, has said, oh, look, we can't afford these massive subsidies. You know, and they add up $22 billion by 1930 under the most ambitious set of assumptions that I've endured in my academic career, but they do it. And they get a number 22, but the trans, what, that's not a government payment of 22 billion. It's a transfer with, of value within the industry, within the power generation, power distribution industry, which is what we want to achieve to respond to climate change. So as I say, if you start with the assumption that climate change doesn't matter, then, of course, you come to the conclusion quite quickly that we don't need a renewable energy target. <laughs> What's the diesel fuel rebate worth itself? I don't know. It runs into billions. I haven't seen a recent number, but it's somewhere three to five. Somebody will probably know that number. It's a lot of money. Right. Uh, but, you know, we don't worry about... We've got a budget crisis, but we can give up a lot of revenue from a carbon price, and uh, that doesn't compound that, price, that crisis. So, I mean, there are... It, we've got to get reality into this. Um, how you get the management to change, it's true. I mean, a lot of them are like me, they're old, grey, you know, figure's not going to happen on their watch. And it's true probably with a lot of political leaders as well. But you have to just over time sustain the campaign to get them to recognise the magnitude of those risks. And uh, look, what will happen next year, let's assume I'm right and, and China and the US actually drive a, a, an international agreement on emissions reduction. Uh, given the Abbott response and most other things that happen offshore, he'll be right in there with his ears back saying, oh, well, you know, I always said that if the world moves, I'll go with it. <laughs> so we need to create that circumstance where he has to say, yeah, well, I'll go with it. OK. Yes, over here, please. Oh, hi, my name is Sam. I, I just wonder, when you're thinking about how to change the behaviour of the people who are making decisions about this, both political leaders and leaders within the finance sector, do you get an impression that the problem is that they don't believe the climate of science change or that they don't care in terms of do they not actually think the world's going to warm or do they think that the consequences are so minor in the foreseeable future that they not bother about it? Because I guess that impacts the discussion we should be having with them. It reminds me of that old story about a football coach who was asked for the bad performance of his team, whether it was ignorance or apathy that was causing it. And he said, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> There's an element of that, unfortunately, in this world today. And politically, given the negativity of the short-term, you know, game that's played, it's called politics, and uh, the fact that, you know, you just oppose everything the government does, and if they have a tax, what's a new tax? And you can hit it hard without any debate about the merits of that. And there are fault on both sides, because the government didn't defend what it was doing either. Uh, you have an issue. But then when you appoint a guy who's heading Morris Newman, to, who had your business advisory group, who's not only a climate denier, but recently wrote a column in the Australian newspaper suggesting that we'd better get ready for go global cooling. Um, you know, you are up against it. Uh, but, um, you know, they, they make short-term decisions, as was said in that previous question, on their watch, three, four-year cycle. I won't be here if the problem actually does become significant in 2030, 2035, whatever. But we can't allow that to happen as a community. And we've seen the power of the social media in so many other areas, from the Arab Spring through to a whole host of other examples. We've seen it in political campaigns. I think we need a political campaign just to jolt them into the reality of what they're doing at government level, what these, these uh, 
power, that what the power lobby is doing. I mean, the, there's no doubt that the fossil fuel-based power lobby is, is very powerful in this country. But the, the public, no matter who's been in power, they've actually managed to win the argument. But, John, the public uh, would seem to a large degree to have disengaged, at least from the level it was. So what do you think's happened there? Well, I think, you know, the, the reason the public disengaged were two, I guess. I mean, if you go back to when Rudd came in, Rudd had a tremendous mandate. Uh, sign Kyoto and get on and deal with climate change. He had a specific agenda. I'm going to have the Garno report, a white paper, the legislation. If I can't get the damn legislation through the Senate, I'll have a double dissolution and I'll win and we'll move on. We'll have an emissions trading scheme. Everything worked perfectly to timetable except the last one. In February 2010, he balked at the idea of a double dissolution and in doing that, he killed himself. He killed the, the issue and, you know, politics got played around that issue in the Labor Party and in the, in, 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 in the opposition, then opposition. And uh, the constituency got frightened in that process. We, we're told that we're going to get massive increases in electricity prices. We've already had massive increases in electricity prices through really bad policy. I mean, when you go and put poles and wires in uh, that are Rolls-Royce in quality, way above capacity and cost of what was a sensible upgrade, and that upgrade had been delayed for many years under successive governments. And then you compensate those people who are putting in the poles and wires to make sure they don't lose a loss, make a loss. I mean, you've had really bad policy leading to that outcome and you get the very large increases in power prices that we've had. Yet when you get the government's own study of the renewable energy target done by ASIL and its impact on power prices saying that, you know, wholesale power prices will be coming down by 2020 and probably retail prices will come down, you, you say, well, hang on, that argument just got swept aside, the sensible argument. So I think, in simple terms, they've run a very successful fear campaign to get to where they are. I don't think you can run another fear campaign the same way on the same issue again with the same intensity and the same success. I still harbour that belief in relation to the GST, by the way. <laughs> I think inevitably there's going to be a debate about whether we put it up, broaden it and put it up. I think the fear campaign's a lot harder to run the second time around. And, um, you know, it was an easy get for Abbott. Gillard announced he changed her mind, uh, broken that pre-election commitment, if you want to look at it that way, back in the February of that year. Didn't say why. Didn't make any attempt to say, here's the science, this is what it means, this is the significance of the science, these are the options, we've picked this option, why have we picked this option, why are we going to... A full sort of regular policy education and uh, marketing process. She said nothing between February and July. So Tony got up every morning with an even bigger idea about how he could frighten the life out of people about what would happen. You know, Wyala was going to close, women were going to become barren, whatever. He got away with it. He got away with it. And uh, that set of circumstances is not going to be repeated. Okay. The next time they'll be forced an argument. I like the idea that GST won't be a problem. You can come up with fight back too. <laughs> I've, we've heard a lot about the investment horizon being a little bit too short for most of these financial institutions. Um, I was just wondering if you also think that their profit, maxim profit maximising and short-term growth models are a little flawed, and if so, under what sort of metrics should, be we, should we measure their long-term, perhaps, financial uh, performance? Look, you can understand an asset manager who's hired to manage a portfolio and remunerated on the basis of short-term performance why they focus short-term. Right? Yet the asset owner has a longer-term fiduciary responsibility to maximise the return to the individual members of that superannuation fund. And that, that difference in perspective is not, is not recognised. I mean, it's like my argument back in 2007 when I said, oh, I think the stock market's going to go down 50%. 
I said it publicly in speeches, I said it privately to these, these, these fund managers. Okay, I had to, in doing that, say, I'm going to miss the peak here. I mean, it's going to keep going up for a while. And I'm advocating that we sit in Westpac fixed deposit at 6% <laughs> rather than take the risk and staying in the stock market and hoping to get out near the peak. Because you know what happens, once it turns and you get that compression in financial markets, everybody, you know, you're last in and you, you, know, you, you, you suffer the consequences. So that, that sort of argument is a difficult argument to run in a world which is short-term focused. It is short-term. Everything's short-term. And technology has made it even shorter-term. I mean, you know, we have phones and cameras and, you know, all sorts of technology which have truncated processes. People want instantaneous decisions, results, outcomes, you know. It's a different world and you're arguing a long-term structural point. You've got to focus on how you argue that long-term structural point against the reality of that short-term set of forces. Politically, it's short-term. Investment management, short-term. You know, <coughs> the technology's driving it to be short-term. But some, at some point, you can get people to understand the significance of the challenge and you've just got to work on it. OK, what I'm going to do is just take you, both of you now um, together and John will be able to hold your questions or comments. So. <coughs> Keep it, if you can, reasonably focused, because we've only got about 10 minutes to go. So do you want to go first? Yes, my name's Chris, and um, unlike the two uh, speakers from that side and the one from here, I'm 58 and I won't make 2050, OK? I've got three children who Don't will... Don't give up. And no, no. <laughs> no, no, the, my, my point is that my children and their partners, if I pool their superannuation pool, it wouldn't come within 10% for mine and my wife's, and that's simply because I'm old, OK? Now, they cannot jump out of their super and manage it themselves like I can. So the current environment in the Australian superannuation advisory industry is it's mainly retail, and they're heard, as you said earlier, they're, they don't have critical mass so they can manage their own. So. We, and I don't know what the international environment is, but we in Australia, in my opinion, need some serious modification to the way the superannuation industry is controlled and, and does invest. The transparency is one thing. So what, it, what is your advice or, or desire in terms of the way that the um, superannuation industry and those um, funds that have to be put in should be managed to the, mm. to the desire of the individuals. Thank you. And uh, you'll be the... Yeah. Thanks. Uh, my name's David. Uh, thanks very much for your talk and all your work on this, Dr Hewson. Uh, my question follows from the other one, I think, which is, given that in Australia superannuation is compulsory, should disclosure be? Thanks. Could we? Should, should, since superannuation is compulsory, should disclosure also be compulsory? Yeah. Look, these are very important issues, and uh, one would like to hope that in something like the Murray Review, some of these issues would be addressed. I mean, I have no doubt that we are very, very expensive um, in management terms, management cost terms, superannuation industry. The fees are excessive, I understand, by global standards. Um, we've sort of drifted into where we are. If you think about when superannuation started, actually in a significant way, I used to be a trustee of a super fund in the 80s, for example, before compulsory super. But, um, yeah, we sort of drifted, drifted into superannuation and the early financial planners and superannuation advisors that went out there were basically ex-life insurance salesmen yeah. who figured if they could get you into a particular paper on which they got their biggest trailing fee, they were very happy. And that's what they did. They were paper stuffers and they were not giving you objective advice. 
They were selling a product. They were product salesmen. We've seen it. Storm Financial, another dimension of that. I mean, there are lots of examples of it. And you need that industry to be opened up into, in terms of a significant, independent, objective review of the way that process works, the way there's a, there's a concentration, again, of asset managers, for example, very big influence on unit of, of industry-based super funds. There's a whole lot of issues in there, which we haven't got time to go through, but that needs to be opened up and examined properly and driven into, in a direction of absolutely complete transparency and accountability. And I, I agree with the point about disclosure. You need immediate disclosure of these things. And while you have levels of disclosure in the financial system, perhaps under the Corporations Act, anything material needs to be disclosed immediately. I mean, some of these things don't apply. These standards don't apply through the superannuation industry and they can be making horrific mistakes and they're not accountable for it until you get your superannuation report, return report, that says, oh, by the way, the market went down 50% and we saw we missed it. But we only went down 49.2, so we've added 8.8 value to you and they've just wiped out your capacity to retire. That, that world needs to be opened up, particularly with compulsory super. You know, a lot of younger people, I think, you know, the money that's taken out their, their, their pension fund and they don't, their pensions, their, sorry, their, their wages and salaries, and they don't pay attention to it, it's just there. It'll just build up over time. I'll worry about it when I'm 40 or 50. But the general, the, on that, the gentleman over here was saying that for his children, the, the amounts of money at this point in their life are so small they can't run a self-managed super. No, no, they can't either. So, so are they completely disenfranchised, as he was suggesting? Yeah. Or are there things they can do and do we need to reform the system to enable people to That's have That's part of the process of reform, to look at the, the, the distribution of those superannuation benefits. And, you know, there are a lot of gender issues there, men versus women, young versus old. None of that is actually dressed very, very easily. I mean, I had a long experience in working in Singapore, um, working with the Singapore... Uh, institutions in the early late, late 70s, early 80s. And they had a compulsory super scheme, uh, probably the creme de la creme. I think at its peak it took like 50-odd percent of your wages, uh, half from you and half from the employer, into a fund. And uh, two things stuck out in my mind about that experience. One was that in investing that through the Monetary Authority of Singapore, they went really long gold and gold assets and gold physical and, and gold assets in the late 70s, early 80s, and I can't remember the year, but I do remember the event. The gold price went to bed one day at 9.80 and woke up the next morning at 4.80 and wiped out most of their international reserves. They then started to professionally manage that with the government of Singapore Investment Corporation, Tomasic, Singapore Technology, and a range of other institutions to do that. The second thing was they were building up all these balances, yet people were not getting any benefit from those balances. So inevitably they had to open it up and allow you to buy an investment property, allow you to pay your health insurance, to allow to fund your students, your kids' education, uh, because you couldn't have compulsory super on one side managed sort of quite independently and extreme in their sense uh, of those individuals and their interests and their particular short and longer term financial needs at the same time just let the system run. And there's an element of that, I know that's an extreme example, but it's an element of that in the management of super today. We have had so much focus on just getting from you know, 6 to 9 to 15% without this equivalent amount of focus on the management of that money on behalf of individuals of different ages and different requirements. Well, I think one of the most extraordinary things about the Australian system is that it's compulsory to contribute, made compulsory by governments, where there is absolutely no guarantee at all that there'll be anything there at the end. It's a... I mean, it's extraordinary kind of 
moral burden that a government must face in relation to this, which comes back to this climate. And, and look, the, the issue goes much broader. I mean, superannuation tax concessions are overwhelmingly screwed, skewed, I should say, in favour. <laughs> it's the people that get skewed, it's the, the, the benefits that are, are screwed, uh, are skewed, I should say. Um, they. <laughs> Can't get that right. Can We've I? got the idea. Don't worry. <laughs> anyway, look. If you look at look at the difference in just in the contributions advantages. If you're on an income of twenty thousand dollars a year, to get a hundred dollar superannuation benefit, you need to spend one hundred eighteen dollars. If you're on an income of two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, to get the same benefit, the hundred dollar benefit, you only need to spend sixty two dollars fifty. That is an unbelievable bias in favour of the wealthy in superannuation. Then you get advantages in terms of the tax rate on the super earnings and the capacity to take it out cash-free and so on. Then All those elements are really staggering when you think about it. And the government has trouble arguing we want to increase the retirement age and we want to give, increase the asset and income tests on, on, uh, on pensions. How can you just look at that, which is obviously going to impact more on the lower to middle income group than anybody else? at the same time not look at those superannuation tax concessions, tax expenditures, which give an overwhelming benefit to the wealthy. And those sort of issues need to be addressed. Go into our political system, both sides of politics are saying, we won't touch superannuation till the next election. You need to do it, not only from a revenue or budget crisis or whatever point of view, but you need to do it in an equity sense. It's overwhelmingly inequitable. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're almost at our assigned time. <laughs> I think it's been a fascinating introduction uh, to this topic and I actually like the gentleman who rephrased the, the topic title, the plan that's going to destroy our super. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very nicely done. Would you please join with me, everybody, in, in thanking uh, John Houston. Yeah.